Our time's limited. Let's take our Bibles, and I want you to turn with me to the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. We'll read in just a moment. Give you a little more instruction there in a moment. But I want to tell you this, that volumes have been written, could, could have been written, have been written about Jesus. You know, there's approximately 200 titles in the Old and New Testament, 200 that describe the person of Jesus, our Lord, his life, his ministry. But of all the things that we could say about Jesus, one of the things that's so clear in Scripture is this, and I refer to one of the qualities of his life, and that is that Jesus was a man of prayer. As we look on the pages of Scripture, especially, of course, the New Testament, we see that Jesus was a man of prayer. And I I would say this, this may be one of the ways in which the modern church is very much unlike Jesus. I had a man ask me one time, why is it so hard to get Christians to come to a church prayer meeting? But as we look at the Word of God, what we see is we see Jesus praying. We see Jesus praying regularly, Luke 5.16. We see Jesus in Mark 1 praying early in the morning before it was daylight. It was dark outside. He slipped away from wherever he was, found a quiet place to pray. In Matthew 14, we find Jesus praying late in the evening. In Luke 6, we find Jesus praying all night long. He had an all-night prayer meeting. In Luke 6, we also find Jesus going up into the mountain alone to pray. We find that Jesus spent so much time in prayer that his disciples would have to go interrupt his prayer time because there was other things that he needed to do, Luke 9. We know that Jesus was praying at his baptism in Luke chapter 3, right before he was going to go down in the waters of Jordan the scripture says and Luke includes this that he was praying we know that Jesus had an all-night prayer meeting before he chose his 12 apostles Luke 6 12 and 13 we also know that in Luke 9 that Jesus was praying when the miraculous transfiguration took place on what is called the mount of transfiguration and his countenance Begin to shine with the glory of God. He was praying. We know that when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he was there praying. We have that record of that prayer. Not only that, but in the book of Hebrews, we have a commentary on that time. It says in 5 and 7 of Hebrews, who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his godly fear. We know that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was praying. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was praying to his father. And it may even surprise you to wonder what Jesus has been doing for the last 2,000 years. Jesus has been in a 2,000 year prayer meeting because Hebrews says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. So I would say this to us today, that if we truly want to be like Jesus, I hear people say that, oh, I want to be like Jesus. Well, if you want to be like Jesus, then we must develop a prayer life like his prayer life. 
And if we want to be like Jesus, we must slip away and find that secret closet of prayer, according to Matthew 6 and 6. And he sees us praying in secret, and the Father will reward us openly. Now, I've asked you to turn to the Lord's Prayer. And when I ask you to turn to the Lord's Prayer, you notice I didn't give you which one. You noticed that, didn't you? You thought I did that by mistake. I didn't. Because you probably want to turn to Matthew 6 or Luke 11, but I want you to actually turn to John 17, which is the real Lord's Prayer. Here in John 17, we have the most extensively recorded prayer of Jesus found anywhere in the Word of God. Jesus most likely prayed this prayer when he was still in the upper room. We have all the other instructions around the Lord's table about the Holy Spirit coming and how the Comforter would come. And then we have this prayer. It was probably prayed at the end of that instruction after the, the Passover that they had celebrated. He gave instructions. They probably sang one of the Psalms or a few of the Psalms together. Then him and his disciples left the upper room and headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. John 17 has been called the holiest of holies of the Gospels because it is here that we get to listen in to Jesus talk to the Heavenly Father. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. In this prayer, which we'll look at three verses quickly, but in this entirety of this chapter, Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for those disciples that are there. But did you know Jesus has prayed for you because this prayer is a pray, prayer for all those who will ever believe in his name? How many of you have believed on his name? I have. Jesus has prayed for you. And he's still praying for you. I want us to look at the first three verses. And in these first three verses, Jesus is praying about the greatest subject ever known to man. Have you prayed about this subject? This subject is about eternal life. That's my title today, eternal life. Have you prayed about eternal life? Do you have family members that are not saved? The boys and girls today, their lesson are in children's church is Jesus, our righteousness. I wonder if our children are saved. Have they come to know the Lord? What about our teenagers? Do they know the Lord? Are all your family members saved? Do you know the most important subject known to man is eternal life? Everything else pales in significance to this. And we find Jesus praying about this. Let's get in on this intimate moment. John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words. Lifted up his eyes to heaven and said... Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you and the, that you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. Whom you have sent. 
And we ask the Lord to bless his word today. Eternal life. I really want to talk about one thing with basically three subpoints. We want to talk about this life that is from God. We'll look at it in three different ways. Jesus said here, he should give eternal life to as many as you, that you have given him. This is what Jesus is praying about. Jesus prays that we may receive eternal life. Nothing more important, as I have said, than the subject of eternal life. Notice with me, first, is this life is being provided here. Jesus is getting ready to provide eternal life. Jesus is going to do those things that will be necessary to secure eternal life. He said the hours come. You remember in your Bible reading, you're reading along, and then he says to Mary, my hour's not yet come. He says to his brothers, your hour's anytime's good for you because you're not following God. You just do what you want to do. But my hour has not come. What hour was that? That was the very hour that he would make his way to the cross. The glory was the glory of the cross. Now, the world looks on it, and especially in that day, we sanitize it today. We wear, we wear uh, little crosses. With, some people have even Jesus on the cross, and we've sanitized it, and we've diminished it. How many of you think it'd be appropriate to wear uh, 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 an electric chair around your neck? Wouldn't that be inappropriate to wear an electric chair around your neck? That's what it was in that day. It was the instrument of death to the world's eye. It was shame. Any man that would hang on a cross was cursed by God. That's why the religious people so blinded. They said, he's cursed by God. But no, that was the glory of God there at the cross. The Savior, Son of God, dying for sinful men. But here we see Jesus, he prays to be glorified. He's talking about the cross. He's going to suffer and he's going to bring glory to the Father. You realize this was prophesied in the Old Covenant? It says this in Isaiah 53. It says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This is a, this is a prophecy. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, that's us. He shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. And the Lord, uh, the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. God's going to be glorified through Jesus. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify. There's justification by faith. Shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. When Jesus is saying, let me glorify the son, what he's saying is, Father, provide a way for fallen sinful men, Adam's fallen race, that is fallen so far that there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Glorify thy son, Jesus says. And how will he glorify the, the father? He will glorify the father by making a way for sinful man and holy God to be reconciled. Now consider this. This life, this eternal life. I want to I make several clear statements about eternal life. The first thing I'll make is this, is this life is a gift that underscore must be received. 
You're not born, you're not sprinkled. I was sprinkled at the Catholic church. I was sprinkled as a little baby at the Catholic church. No, no, no. Listen, this is this life. This is a gift that underscore must be received. This contradicts the doctrine of universalism. You say, oh, pastor, what is the universal? What is universalism? Universalism basically says that everyone will be saved, that there's not going to be any lost people, that everyone will eventually be saved. But Jesus says here that you should give eternal life. Listen, we must be given eternal life because we don't possess eternal life outside of Christ. We don't just possess this eternal life. Every man, listen, every man outside of Christ is dead in their sins. Every man outside of Christ is dead and separated from God and is actually under the wrath of God. The wrath of God remains there as long as they reject the answer to their sin, and that's Jesus. This verse, these verses contradict universalism, and that means this, because we, all people will not be saved. Now there again, universalism states that all will be saved. But that's not what the B-I-B-L-E teaches. Not all will be saved. Now there's the heretic Rob Bell wrote a book in the last several years. And he is a heretic because he has left the gospel. And in his book, Love Wins. Isn't it amazing how people can sanitize false teaching? In In his book called Love Wins, he basically says that because God is love... Everyone's going to be saved in the end. That contradicts the gospel. Let me read a portion of the book. Here's here's what he says. And, And he says, here's the gist. Here's the gist. Now I'm reading, I'm quoting. He says, and I quote, Hell is what we create for ourselves when we reject God's love. Hell is both a present reality for those who resist God and a future reality for those who who die unready for God's love. Hell is what we make of heaven when we cannot accept the good news of God's forgiving mercy. But hell is not forever, he says. God will have his way. How can can his good purposes fail? Every, Every sinner will turn to God and realize he has already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next There will be no eternal conscious torment. God says no to injustice in the age to come. But he does not, he does not pour out wrath. We bring temporary suffering upon ourselves and he certainly does not punish for eternity. In the end, love wins. A man, a pastor by the name of Kevin DeYoung wrote a critique on the book and I quote that now, I'm quoting He says this about this teaching. Love wins is such a departure from historic Christianity that there's no easy way to tackle it. You read the book and there's so much error, he's saying, you don't even know where to start with your critique. He says this, and I I continue to quote, you can't point to one or two or three main problems or three or four exegetical missteps. There is a, mar- listen, this is a markedly different telling of the gospel from start to finish. Eternal life is a gift that must be received. Does the Bible teach universalism? 
Meaning that everyone will be saved one day? No, the Bible is very clear. Multitudes not only have, but multitudes will reject Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they will die lost and spend an eternity without God forever, sad to say. The highest authority ever known to man, Jesus Christ said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many be that go their way. We read the very terrifying passage in Revelation chapter 20 when the books are open and the, and the multitudes, the rich, the poor, everyone, servant, slave, master, everyone is gathered and the books are open, which are the record of man's life. And everyone who's not found in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Here's the question. It says he gives life to everyone the Father has given him. The question is this, how has the Father given believers to Jesus? And how is eternal life given and received in the heart of a person? Listen, eternal life is given to everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ. Not, not simply to someone who God arbitrarily does that. So th think about this, this life must be received. But secondly, this life, listen, is available to all human beings. Did you hear that? Did, would you agree with that? That the Bible teaches that, that salvation, eternal life must be received, but also that it is available to every single human being that has ever lived. Now this contradicts Calvinism with the doctrine of Calvinism. Notice he said, to as many as you've given me. So how, how are people given to Jesus? Are people given to Jesus by God's fiat? In other words, God just says, you know, I think, you know, from eternity past, I think this one should go to heaven and this one should go to hell without ever hearing the gospel, without ever giving them a choice. God just determined where everyone's going to go arbitrarily. No, that's not what the Bible teaches, but yet that's what Calvinism teaches. Calvinism basically teaches this. I don't want to be unkind, but I think this is what it teaches. Calvinism teaches that Jesus doesn't love all people. Calvinism teaches that Jesus did not die for all people, but only for a select few. In fact, Calvinism actually teaches that God is glorified when people go to hell. What a bizarre teaching. It didn't come from the Bible, I promise you. Let me give you the cliff notes of what Calvinism is. It's under the acronym of TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. TULIP is beautiful, but this TULIP is not. TULIP, T, stands for total depravity. That means, that means this, in, this, in their thinking, that man is so depraved that he can't even choose God if he wanted to. He couldn't be saved if he wanted to. It, it's called by some, some scholars have called it total inability. In other words, so if, if this is true, that man couldn't even be saved if he wanted to, then why does God command people to be saved? If you can't be saved, if you can't choose Jesus, then why would God say repent and be saved? Why would he say to us to come and repent and believe the gospel? Total depravity in that system is total inability. And then there's the you, the unconditional election. That is that God has declared, listen, how strange. God has declared from eternity past who will be saved and who will be lost. Before they were ever born. Under this system, this, this is his divine decree. 
It has nothing to do with anyone's choice of accepting or rejecting Jesus. Nothing. It's just God's choice. He chooses some for heaven. He chooses some for hell. Calvinism teaches that God created some people so he could damn them. Can you imagine a damnable doctrine? But that's what it teaches. Then there's the L, which is the limited atonement, which is just this. They teach that the blood has not shed for every human being, only for the elect. It kind of goes like this. This is the logic. Under Calvinism, the logic is this. It is that Jesus died, if Jesus died for all men, and not all men are saved, then Jesus' work of redemption would have failed. And God can't fail, so he only died for a few who are saved. It's imposing something on God's sovereignty that's not there. The eye is irresistible grace. This means that God chooses some to be saved. And if he chooses you to be saved, whether you want to be saved or not, you're going to be saved. It's saved by force, not choice. It's say God's forcing you to be saved. But yet the Bible said, whosoever wills, come and drink of the water of life. And then the last one, perseverance of the saint, tulip. The P is perseverance of the same. And this is where the doctrine once saved, always saved come from. It's a doctrine that's not taught in the word of God. It basically states this. That all, are, all who are saved are guaranteed unconditionally to persevere to the end. And in its extreme form, Calvinism teaches that no matter what you do, you can become a Satanist, you can become a pedophile, you can become a murderer. It doesn't matter. If you're once saved, you're always saved. Guaranteed unconditionally. And yet, there's a mountain of scriptures, a mountain, that warn Christians of the dangers of apostasy. Is it not? There's a mountain of scriptures that warn us that we must persevere, not in a perfect life, faith. Salvation is received by faith and it's kept by faith. And we're called to persevere. Think about this. Why all these warnings in scripture if there's no danger of forfeiting our place in God's eternal kingdom? So think about this. The The Bible actually teaches the opposite in many points to Calvinism. The scripture teaches, listen, are you listening? Come on. The Bible teaches that Jesus does love every human being. The Bible teaches that I believe that the blood was shed for all human beings. It teaches that the Lord has provided salvation and the Holy Spirit will work. The Holy Spirit will convict, but we must choose to accept or reject salvation. God does not force us to serve him. God does not want anyone that he has to force into heaven. He wants us to willingly say yes to Jesus. And I say yes to Jesus today. I say yes to Calvary. I say yes to salvation. I say Jesus is the only savior of the world. I say yes to him. He doesn't have to force me. I say Say yes. Yes, Jesus. This life must be received. This life is available to all. And then this life is a gift that must be received, as I've said, by faith. By faith we receive this gift. Now think about this. This this combats legalism. He said that he should give eternal life. Give eternal life. Now just quickly on this. No one will ever earn their way to heaven. Now, there's no good deeds. There's no good people. There's no one's good. No, not one. You may compare yourself with someone else and think, I'm a pretty good person. But we have a sin nature apart from Christ. We've all sinned. Not just sins. Not just sins, plural, but sin. We have a sin nature that has to be dealt with. 
And that can only be dealt with at conversion, at salvation, at the moment when we are born again and we receive it by faith. The verse that's so wonderful, you are, you are, by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works as anyone should boast. Jesus is providing this salvation. This salvation is being provided. Jesus, we see, is praying. What's he praying? He's praying about eternal life. He's praying about the people that will be saved. He could see, prophetically, he could see that many sons would be brought into glory. But we don't believe in universalism. Salvation must be received. Salvation is available to everyone, that whosoever will. Salvation... It's by faith and by grace. Now think about this. But salvation only comes through one person. And that is through the person of Jesus Christ. There's only one Savior of the world. His name is Jesus. Now this combats what's called syncretism. What's syncretism? It's defined as this. Syncretism involves the merging and the assimilation of different religions. And it's, it's asserting that the underlying unity for allowing and the inclusion of all faiths. We're going to put all, we're going to put Islam together. We're going to put Christianity together. We're going to put Buddhism together. We're going to put Shintoism together. We're going to put Hinduism in there. And we're going to merge them all together in a nice little world. The, word, the, the, the salvation that we proclaim can be mixed with no other religion. There's no other religion There's no other saving system. There's no other saving gospel. What one gospel? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do you realize everything changes, but everything is the same? What do you mean? What's happening in America today is the same thing that is happening, that happened in Rome 2,000 years ago. Rome would conquer the different territories. Rome conquered the world for some thousand years. And they would conquer different territories. They would conquer nations. And you say, well, what did they do with all those gods? Did they say, no, no, no. They said, no, now you nations, you've you got to serve our gods. No, that's not what they did. They were very synchronistic. They would just add them all together. They would conquer a nation. They would add it all together. And there was one problem when Christianity came along. And I quote from the Harper Harper Bible Dictionary, page one, uh, 120, if you've got one. Here's what it says, and it's under the heading, Roman syncretism. Here's what it says. And think about where we are in America today. Think about the exclusivity of Christianity. Think about how we are accepted, or rejected, that is, when we say, when someone says something like this, so you're saying that a... a, a you know, a genuine Muslim not going to heaven, a genuine Jew's not going to heaven, a genuine Hindu's not going to heaven. How horrible are you for saying Jesus is the only way? That's exactly what the New Testament church had to deal with. Listen to the quote. Rome had an affinity for selective borrowing from the cultures around them, especially from people they had conquered. And, and this was clearly evident in the Roman religions in the Roman religion. Thus the traditions, characteristics, methodology, mythology of the Greek pantheon and, uh, and are reproduced in Roman tradition. For instance, 
So that, for example, Zeus is renamed Jupiter. Hera becomes Juno and Ares. The god of war is called Mars. Rome was very willing to honor any new god who may present itself. And the pontific, oh, look at this, the pontifex maximus. That was the head, head religious guy in Rome. What a name. The high priest would coordinate celebrations for the many deities. Now listen, there's only one provision made by Rome. One provision. And that was this, that no group could promote their God as the only God. You can't do that. And this is where Christianity came head to head with the Roman Empire. They couldn't burn incense to Caesar. They wouldn't worship any of the gods. Jesus Christ was the only way. And they said, we don't like your Christianity. We just want to add it. They said, we won't be added. We'd rather die than have you add this to your syncretism. No. Salvation, eternal life, is only through Jesus Christ. It's being provided here. We're seeing Jesus provided quickly. Secondly, this life, Jesus is proclaiming it. Look at it here. Look at verse three. This is eternal life. What's he saying? He's proclaiming it. This is, Jesus is praying to his father. This is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Can I tell you this? Eternal life has been delegated to one person and one man. One person has been delegated the authority. Look at it. Verse 2. You have given him authority over all flesh. Jesus has been delegated the authority to grant eternal life. Amazing. We see this prophesied in the Old Testament. I'll be quick here. We see this prophesied in the Old Testament. There were prophecies that stated that there was an authoritative ruler that was going to come. We see it in the Christmas story, actually. A powerful ruler was coming. He would someday be delegated with authority, great authority. Look at, look at the Christmas, uh, Isaiah 9, 6. Listen, now listen. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will rest on his shoulders. All authority is going to rest on him. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Come on, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. In the great book of Daniel, chapter 7, if you want to turn there. Esmeralda, you can turn there in your church Bible. She, she made me sign it. And I said, well, I didn't get it. The, the, Ola and Nita did that, but it's, I guess I took credit for it, y'all. She said, no, I want you to sign it. I signed Trinity Light Church. I pastor Child, I signed it. But Esmeralda, maybe they need to sign it. Daniel 7 said, this ruler, here's what he would do. Daniel 7 in verse 13. Daniel sees a vision. I was watching in the night visions. 
And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near to him. Brought, brought, uh, they brought him near to him. Then to him was given dominion. And glory and a kingdom that all, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. This church shall never be stopped. It may be buffeted. It may be battered. There may be times of decrease. There may be times that people apostatize. There may be times when people join it. But I can tell you the promises is this kingdom shall never fail. Because Jesus is at the head of this kingdom. But it was prophesied. Uh, Craig Keener, which is actually an Assembly of God scholar, said this about these verses. The background suggests that Jesus' death and resurrection not, uh, represent no temporal event. No temporal event. But the climactic inbreaking of a new world. Can I tell you this? Jesus holds all authority in his hand. He holds all authority. One day every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. Jesus hung on the cross and died for our sins. He conquered death, hell, and the grave by his resurrection. He at this very moment is at the right hand of Father, ruling in power. And he is going to return one day to establish a kingdom and put down all evil, all authorities in his hands. And listen, he is the only one who has the authority to truly grant eternal life. No church can grant it. No pastor can grant it. No slick evangelist can. No denomination can. Only Jesus can give salvation. And whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're talking about eternal life today. He's the only one. How is it given? How is eternal life given? Is it given like the Calvinist says, by divine fiat? No, no, no. It's given by faith. Listen to the word of God as I close. This is Romans 3, 21. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which comes by divine fiat in eternity past, before man... No, 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 I'm sorry. I, got, I went astray there. No, no, no. Through faith. Say that with me. Through faith in Jesus Christ to all, on all who believe. All. Every nation. Every tongue. Every person. Red and yellow, black and white. Every human being that's ever lived. Not a select few. His blood is broad. His love is broad. It embraces the whole world if they will just believe. And we know that not all will believe. But I believe. Do you believe? For there is no difference for all of sin and short, fall short of the glory of God. Only a Calvinist can make all not mean all. Well, all doesn't mean all, but the child's it means all. The, oh, my. Verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus.
It's been revealed. Jesus said, this is eternal life. Don't go any further. This is it. Everybody say, this is it. Don't look anymore. You don't need new age. You don't need yoga and Hindu religions and seances and all of this. This is it. This is eternal life. Stop searching for it. Stop looking around here and there. I'm going to try this out. Philosophy is what? Searching for truth. Oh, I found it. Because behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You ever notice most religions are mystical and clouded with uncertainty? But Christianity is imbued with divine certainty. I believe in eternal security. Just not the unconditional part. I'm secure. I'm secure for eternity. Jesus said these words. Most assuredly I say to you. He who hears these words of mine and believes. In him who sent me. Has. Eternal life. Everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment. But is passed from death to life, into life. This life has been provided through our Savior. This life has been proclaimed. He has the authority to give it. And I would end with this. This life is the highest privilege known to man. Nothing, nothing more glorious. Nothing more phenomenal. Nothing more majestic. That to enter eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He says this. This is eternal life. Think about this. We've, we've so diminished the gospel, the salvation message. It's like, oh, just you know, join the church and let me sprinkle you a little bit with some water. And it's like, do you know how magnificent this is? Do you know what salvation is? Do you know what eternal life is? you know what we're talking about today? Look at this verse. Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. You is the God of heaven. You is the creator of the world. The you is the Father God who sits on his throne and, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is described as knowing God. Knowing him. Eternal life is not knowing about God. Do you realize you can know about, a lot about God and not know him? There's professors that have great minds that have studied religion and Christianity and they teach it at liberal secular colleges in the, in the religion class. They've never known him. They know a lot about him, but they've never known him. To have eternal life is to know him personally. Think about it. Nicodemus knew a lot about God. Jesus said to him, you must be born again. Paul in his previous life was a Pharisee of Pharisees was an expert in religion, yet he didn't know him. What does it mean to know him? To know him means eternal life is personal. God has no grandchildren. You personally believe and trust Jesus. You receive the gospel. It's something you can have now. We can have it now. We can walk with God now. It's personal. It's also powerful. This gospel is a saving relationship. It's powerful. It breaks sin's dominating power. It's a spiritual change. We're reconciled to God. We're declared righteous in his presence. Where our sins are forgiven. The spirit comes to indwell our lives. And this life is forever. It's a perpetual life. So what I have to do, just keep your faith in Jesus and you are eternally secure. 
everyone who believes will have eternal life. If we keep trusting the Lord and just keep our faith in him, you may stumble, you may stagger, you may stump your toe along the way, which we all have, by the way. But just keep looking unto the author and the finisher of our faith. You may be the weakest one among us. You may stumble every day to the day you go be with him. Stumble into his arms. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We are saved by faith. And we are kept by faith. Let's pray. Our Father and our God today, thank you for this great subject of eternal life. It is why we want to build this church. We want to see the lost come into a saving relationship with you. I pray for all that are here. I pray that all that are watching on our live stream, all that will watch this in the future, that your holy word would bring deep conviction. Show us our need of Christ. Show us, Holy Spirit, how far we are from you. The gulf is so wide that no good works could span it. No religious activity could span it. The gulf between us and God only Jesus taking the hand of Father taking the hand of sinful man and through you through faith in your gospel we can have eternal life I pray that not one under the sound of my voice is lost I pray that we not lose one that everyone would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus our heads are bowed today if you do not know him if you do not know him but you want me to pray for you today and I trust that probably most are saved but just in case pray for me today pastor let me see your hand God bless you here and here I'm going to look just one second maybe you're watching online or we'll watch this you've never been saved you've never been given eternal life you've never been born again maybe you want to raise your hand and say I need this prayer I need to pray prayer won't save you a prayer won't save you only Jesus will save you repeating words won't save you only faith in Christ will save you pray this prayer you you pray it your own way I'll just try to give your voice to it dear father in heaven I am a sinner And Lord, I am in desperate need of a Savior. I know today that religion can't save me. Being trying to be good, because there's none really good. Trying to be good, Father, cannot save me. I realize that I have failed you in many ways. Forgive me for the way I've lived, the things I've done, said, and gone. Today I repent of those sins and I turn to Jesus. I confess Jesus as the Savior, the only Savior. I believe that you died on the cross, shedding your blood for me. I believe that you were buried in the grave. And on the third day, you rose again. And I confess you as Lord. I make the great confession. You are the Lord 
and you're the Lord of my life. Forgive my sins. Wash me in your precious blood. Come into my heart. Indwell me, Holy Spirit. Give me new life. Raise me to new life. I trust in you and you alone. I cling to you. I'm like the Apostle Peter sinking in the waters, reaching up and saying, Lord, save me. That's what we say today. Lord, save me. Save me from my sins. Cleanse my guilty conscience by your precious and holy blood. Make me your new creation. Make me your child so we can cry, Abba, Father. And we're so grateful today for your hearing us. You said whoever would come to you that you would in no wise cast out. You're not casting us out today. You're embracing us. For today is the day of salvation. And I want us all to stand in Jesus' name and to sing a song. Just to worship the Lord a moment. Let this settle in our spirit today. Let's sing. Would you sing please?
want to get some good material in your hand. We want to counsel you further and pray with you about what it really means to to know the Lord and be saved. Uh, And so, Denise, if if, if you want counsel, I guess I would sit this way, whether you raise your hand or not, if you would like a phone call from me this week to spend some time with you and teach you a little, just a few minutes in Scripture, however long it takes, I'd love to pray with you. love to spend time with you on the phone. You know, we're, we're social distancing. We're trying not to, we're not doing that great of a job, but not really doing altar calls. But the altar call is really in our heart, isn't it? It's in our heart that God changes. So if you want a call from me this week, Denise will take your name and number. I'll give you a call. We'll spend some time praying and going through the scriptures. And just we want to make sure that you're on a solid foundation about what salvation is, what it really, really means to know our Lord. Amen. Father, today we say once again, thank you for the privilege of coming together with brothers and sisters of like precious faith. Lord, I ask you today that you would continue to bless us with the love for one another, with the love for your word, continue to maintain the unity of the faith that we really truly care for each other, that we're tender, that we speak tenderly to each other, that we speak respectfully with one another with kindness that we always guard what we have now and Lord as we go forth we're going to see this ground break in December 2020 we're going to see this ground break and in 2021 is our year to make a great advancement we do pray for your help you're our help Lord you're our very present help we pray that everyone Lord that's supposed to be a part of this project whether they go to this church or whether they don't go to this church Whoever you have ordained, Father, we pray that you would stir their heart to look upon us favorably. We certainly desire that your name would be glorified and we could build a work here that would last till the rapture. We ask God that you would now bless your people. Church, I want to pray the prayer over you that this church is named because of this scripture. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you today as you're dismissed on this Lord's Day.